Chapter 44 of Fairy Fingers by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 44 A Change. The strongest heart will sometimes betray that it is overtaxed through the pressure of a sorrow which appears trivial contrasted with the stupendous burdens it has borne unflinchingly. The firmest spirit is sometimes crushed at last by the weight of a moral feather that breaks the back of endurance. Madeleine's courage proved insufficient to encounter calmly this new trial. She could not see that poor, wretched, brain-shattered sufferer, that proud man bowed to the dust, clinging to her with such a strange, perplexed, yet steady grasp, and know that she could no longer tend, amuse, and soothe him. Her composure was forsaking her, and she could only hurriedly whisper to Maurice, I will pack your father's clothes, make him comprehend that we have no alternative, reconcile him if you can. Since he must go, it had better be at once. The Countess is no doubt anxiously expecting him. She passed into the Count's room, gathered together all his wearing apparel, and knelt down beside his trunk. Her heart swelled as though it would burst. She bowed her head upon the trunk she was about to open and sobbed aloud. Madeleine's tears were not like Bertha's, mere summer rain which sprang to her eyes with every passing emotion, and fell in sun-broken showers that freshened and brightened her own spirit. Madeleine seldom wept, and when the tears came, they sprang up from the very depth of her true heart, in a hot, bitter current, which was less like the bubbling of a fountain than the lava bursting from a volcano. It is ever thus with powerful yet self-controlled natures, and Madeleine's equanimity in the midst of trials which would have prostrated others was not a lack of keen, quick sensibility, but an evidence of the supremacy she had gained by discipline over her passions. Madeleine wept and wept, forgetting the work before her, the time that was passing, the necessity for action. All the tears that she might have shed during the last few weeks, if it were her nature to weep as most women weep, now rushed forth in one passionate torrent. She did not hear a step approaching. She was hardly conscious of the arm encircling that raised her from the ground, nor was she startled by the voice that said, Madeleine, my own Madeleine, is it you sobbing thus? I feel this, oh, Maurice, I feel this. My aunt has never had power to make me feel so much since the day in that little chalet when my eyes were open, when she cast me off and I stood alone in the world. Ah, Madeleine, dearest and best beloved, if you had only loved me then, if I could only have taught you to love me, you would not have stood alone. I should have battled against every sorrow that could have come near you, or at least borne it with you. Oh, Madeleine, why could you not love me? For one instant, 
Madeleine was tempted to throw herself into his arms and confess all. The high resolves of years of self-denial were on the verge of being broken in one weak moment, but the very peril, the very temptation calmed her suddenly. She brushed away her tears and gently withdrawing the hand Maurice held, said in broken accents, I have caused you too much pain in other days, Maurice. I should not have added more by allowing you to witness my weakness. Help me to be strong, for you see I have sore need of help. All that I can offer, Madeleine, you reject, said Maurice reproachfully. My heart and life are yours, and you fling them from you. Maurice, my cousin, my best friend, spare me. I have no right to listen to this language, but the right to hear it from the lips of another, retorted Maurice bitterly. Be generous, Maurice. For pity's sake, do not speak on that subject. There was so much anguish depicted in Madeleine's face that Maurice was conscience-stricken by the conviction that his rashly selfish words had caused her additional pain. This is poor return, Madeleine, for all the good you have done my father, all the good you have done me, all the good you have done us all. You see what a selfish brute I am. My very love for you, which should shield you from all suffering, has through that fatal selfishness added to your sorrow. Can you pardon me? When you wrong me, Maurice, I will, but that day has yet to come. Leave me for a few moments, and I will complete what I have to do here and join you. Maurice complied, but slowly and reluctantly, and looking back as he left the room. Madeleine wept no more. She bathed her face and smoothed her disordered hair, and then collected all the articles scattered about, placed them carefully in the trunk, shut it, and locked it, looked about to see that nothing was forgotten, ordered her carriage, and, with a composed mien, entered the little boudoir. Maurice must have used some potent argument with his father, which reconciled him to this change of habitation, or made him comprehend that resistance was useless, for when Robert announced that the carriage was at the door, Madeleine brought the Count's coat to exchange for his dressing gown. He allowed her to assist him, only repeating the term of affection so often on his lips. The Count was ready, and Madeleine signed to Maurice not to linger. He gave his arm to his father, and they passed through the entry. Madeleine preceded them, she opened the street door herself. Father and son passed out, but without bidding her adieu. The steps of the carriage were let down. Just as Maurice was assisting his father to ascend them, the Count drew back with native politeness and said, Madeleine first. Madeleine was standing in the doorway ready to wave her handkerchief as the carriage drove off. Come, Madeleine, come, come, we are waiting for you, cried the Count. Maurice expostulated in vain. His father insisted that Madeleine should go with them. Only get into the carriage, my dear father, while I speak with her. 
Get in before a lady. No, no, we are not backwoodsmen, are we? Come, Madeleine, come. Madeleine saw that argument would not avail with the Count. His mind was not sufficiently clear. It had only glimpses of reason, which allowed him to comprehend by fits and starts. Ever quick of decision, she said cheerfully, Yes, in one moment, and withdrew. But before Maurice had defined her intention, returned, wearing her bonnet and shawl, and sprang into the carriage. Drive into the country, was Madeleine's order to the coachman. Maurice looked at her with inquiring surprise. Dr. Bayard said a drive would do your father good. We can first take a short drive, then return, and go to the hotel. Count Tristan looked happy. The motion of the carriage was agreeable to him, and the fresh air revived him. He gazed eagerly out of the window as though the commonest objects had caught the charm of novelty. His pleasure was of brief duration, for when they had driven about a mile, Prudence suggested to Madeleine that it would be well to return before the patient became fatigued. She pulled the check cord and herself gave the order to Brown's Hotel. Count Tristan paid no attention to the command. The hotel was quickly reached. The carriage stopped. Maurice descended and handed out his father. Let me hear good news of you, said Madeleine to Count Tristan encouragingly and kept her seat. Leaning heavily on his son's arm, the Count mounted the hotel steps, but he did not comprehend Madeleine's words as an adieu and turned to speak to her thinking she was beside him. The coachman was closing the carriage door, preparatory to driving away. Madeleine, Madeleine, cried the Count, stretching his hand imploringly towards her. Madeleine, come, come! Madeleine perceived that Maurice was remonstrating with his father and trying to lead him on, but the Count would not move and still cried out, Come, come! in a voice of piteous entreaty. Curious strangers began to collect. Madeleine knew that if the scene continued, even a few moments a crowd would gather, and all manner of inquiries would be made of her coachman, the hotel keepers, the servants. She leaped out of the carriage, hastened to the Count's side, and said, I will go upstairs with you. The assistance of Maurice may not be sufficient. Lean on my arm also and Count Tristan did lean upon her, for his limbs were too feeble to ascend a long flight without difficulty. The door of the Countess's salon was but a few paces from the top of the stair. Madeleine paused, took the Count's hand affectionately in hers, and pressed it several times to her lips, saying, "'Now I must bid you adieu. It would not be agreeable to the Countess to see me. She would think my coming with you impertinent.' You will not force me to bear the pain of seeing her displeasure. Bid me adieu and let me go. The Count, easily swayed by her persuasive voice and inspired with a vague dread of his mother's anger, kissed her forehead and did not remonstrate, but stood still and watched her gliding swiftly down the stairs. Maurice had whispered to her, I will be with you as soon as possible, Madeleine. Be brave for my sake. The Countess had only betrayed her anxious expectancy by changing her usual seat to one where she could watch the door, and by looking up eagerly every time it opened, when, at last, 
Maurice entered, supporting Count Tristan, there was a gleam of mingled joy and triumph in his mother's eye. It was doubtful whether the triumph of having compelled obedience to her commands and of having wrested her son from Madeleine did not surpass the joy she experienced in beholding that son once again. From her greeting, a stranger would hardly have imagined that when she saw him last his life was in imminent peril, and that she had rushed from his presence overcome by grief and mortification. She now received him as though she had cheated herself into believing that she was doing the honours in her ancestral chateau, and that his brief absence had no graver origin than some ordinary pleasure-party. "'Welcome, my son, welcome,' said she, kissing him on either cheek. "'We have missed you greatly. You are thrice welcome for this brief separation.' Count Tristan returned her salutation, but looked strangely uncomfortable, as though the atmosphere oppressed and chilled him. "'My dear cousin Tristan, I am so glad to see you better. You will soon be quite well again,' said Bertha, embracing him far more warmly than his mother had done. The countess made no allusion to his illness. She preferred wholly to forget the past. Maurice led his father to an armchair, and asked Bertha to bring a pillow. Under Madeleine's tuition, Maurice had become quite expert in promoting an invalid's comfort, and yet he now failed to arrange the pillow satisfactorily. Perhaps his father's chair was not easy, or the one to which he was accustomed was more commodious, or Maurice was more clumsy than usual, for though Bertha also lent her aid, the Count kept repeating fretfully, it's not right. It does not support my shoulders. You can't do it. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. They desisted and sat down beside him. The Countess had no faculty of starting conversation, and Bertha's merry tongue had of late lost its volubility. She had so often irritated her aunt by her remarks that she had become afraid to speak. Maurice was too sad to be otherwise than taciturn. Thus the reunited little family sat in solemn silence. Count Tristram looked around him drearily for a while, and then, having for a moment lost recollection of what had just taken place, exclaimed disconsolately, "'Where is Madeleine?' These unfortunate words roused the Countess. She rose up as loftily as in her proudest, most unchastened days, and approaching him, asked in a rebuking voice, "'For whom do you inquire, my son? Am I to understand that a mother's presence is not all sufficient for her own child? Is not hers the place by his side? If that place has been for a season usurped, should he not rejoice that she to whom it legitimately belongs occupies it once more? The Count looked awed, but did not attempt to reply. Maurice perceived that he must exert himself to shield his father from as much discomfort as could be warded off, and inquired, without directly addressing either the Countess or Bertha, "'Is my father's room prepared for him?' but I suppose that it is. His drive must have fatigued him, and I think he would like to retire. 
the countess disclaimed any knowledge of the state of the apartment signifying that she was not in the habit of occupying herself with matters of this nature bertha was equally ignorant but said she would go and see maurice prevented her by going himself the room looked as though it had not been entered since the day he had packed up his father's clothes to move them to madeleine's and that was more than a fortnight ago there was some delay in getting a chambermaid servants were always busy yet never to be had in an american hotel after several ineffectual attempts he obtained the services of an irish girl and he induced adolphine to lend her aid that the room might be aired swept and put into order more rapidly adolphine was rather a hindrance to the bustling irish help for a Parisian lady's maid knows one especial business and knows nothing else however simple she is an instrument that plays but one tune and she boasts of her speciality as a virtue in something more than an hour adolphine announced that the apartment of monsieur lacan was in readiness count tristan was very willing to retire and after maurice had played the valet without assistance his father seemed disposed to sleep and maurice closed the blinds and sat down quietly until he perceived that the invalid had fallen into a deep slumber henceforth he was to watch beside him when watching was needed alone those blessed nights shorter and sweeter than the happiest dreams when he had sat in the pale light with that beautiful face beaming opposite him that soft voice sounding melodiously in his ears they were gone never to return at that very moment madeleine herself was haunted by the same reflections when she drove home alone and re-entered her house how desolate and dreary it appeared how empty and lonely seemed those apartments so lately occupied by the ones nearest of kin and dearest to her heart she wandered through the rooms up and down up and down with restless feet pondering upon the singular events of the last few weeks she had not before had the leisure to dwell upon them was it indeed true that her roof had sheltered count tristan de Gramont? count tristan de Gramont, whose persecutions in other days had driven her from his own roof whose hatred had embittered and blighted her life and had he learned to depend upon her to love her to talk to her even when his mind wandered of gratitude as though that emotion was ever uppermost in her presence and maurice dear cousin maurice the beloved of her soul who must never know that he was all in all to her had he been her guest for more than two weeks and had she been permitted the joy of promoting his comfort in a thousand little unnoted womanly ways had he sat at her table had they watched together night and day by his father's bed talking through the night hours unwearied when the morning broke unwilling to welcome the first rays of the sun because their sweet inexhaustible converse came to an end had they shared the happiness of ameliorating count tristan's melancholy state and seeing him daily improve and now it was all over 
She must resume her old course of life, her temporarily laid-aside labors. To muse too long upon departed happiness would unfit her for those. Even the sad joy of recollection was denied her. She sent for Mrs. Lawkins, and directed everything to be restored to its usual order. The draperies in the entry were to be taken down. No, let them remain. Madeleine had been accustomed to see that portion of the house divided from the rest. Let them stay. In passing through the drawing-room, she noticed Maurice's trunk, which he had not thought of packing. Though it gave her many a pang, because she was forced to realize more keenly that he was surely gone, it was also with a sense of pleasure that she collected together the articles belonging to him and packing them carefully. Hers was a nature peculiarly susceptible to the pure delight of serving, aiding, sparing trouble to those whom she loved. The meanest household drudgery, the severest labor, the most prosaic making and mending, would have gained a charm and been idealized into pleasures if they contributed to the well-being of those dear to her. But when performed for the one more precious than all others, they became positive joys. She left Mrs. Larkin busied in the arrangement of the apartments and went upstairs to the workroom, which she had not entered for nearly three weeks. She had not seen any of her employees except Ruth and Mademoiselle Victorine since they had all learned her rank. Her unexpected appearance created a great commotion. No one but Ruth had expected to behold her in that apartment again. The women all rose respectfully, but an unwanted restraint checked the expression of gratification which her presence ever imparted. Madeleine smilingly bade them to be seated, then passed around the table and spoke to every needlewoman in turn, inquiring after the personal health of each, or asking questions about her family, for she knew the histories of all, and then learning particulars concerning the work that they had done, and the work in hand. The obsequiousness of Mademoiselle Victorine was perfectly overwhelming, and she experienced no little disappointment. She had made up her mind that since Mademoiselle Melanie was known to be Mademoiselle de Grémont, she would never again be able to appear among her workwomen, even to superintend their labors, and a large portion of the resigned power must be delegated to the accomplished forewoman. Ruth Thornton, Madeleine's favorite, as Victorine considered her, was in the way. But what were the Frenchwoman's wits worth if they could not devise some method of removing a dangerous rival? Madeleine lingered long enough to be au courant to the present state of affairs, and she found that the business of the establishment had so much increased during her seclusion that every day a host of orders had to be declined. This overwhelming influx of patronage was partially attributable to the reports circulated concerning Mademoiselle Melanie's romantic history, and also to a strong desire of the public, a democratic public, to secure the honor of procuring habiliments 
from the establishment of a dressmaker whose father was a duke. Madeleine had taken a seat near Ruth and was listening to Mademoiselle Victorine's histories and suggestions when Robert made it known that Monsieur Maurice de Goimont begged to see Mademoiselle Melanie. Maurice had left his father as soon as he slept. He was impatient to return to Madeleine. He was tortured by the remembrance of her burst of grief and her bitter words. The forced composure by which they were succeeded could not hide from him the deep wound she had received. Though the period which had elapsed since his father was conducted from Madeleine's house was so brief, the rooms, grown familiar to Maurice, already wore a different aspect. He actually felt hurt that Madeleine could have made the change thus rapidly. Men are so unreasonable. Maurice resembled his sex in that particular. Then, too, he found his trunk packed, and he knew by whose hand that duty had been performed. Doubtless, he was grateful, not in the least. It seemed to him that Madeleine was in too much haste to remove the last vestige of his sojourn near her. When she entered the drawing-room, he was standing contemplating the neatly filled trunk and was cruel enough to say, "'You used your old magic to make ready for us, Madeleine, and you have used it again to efface all our footprints here. I can hardly persuade myself that I occupied this room.' Madeleine felt the implied reproach, but without answering the unmerited rebuke, she asked, "'Is your father doing well?' "'He is sleeping at this moment,' but it is very evident that he is going to have a sorrowful time. He will miss you so much. And my grandmother is as cold and hard as though her illness had petrified her more completely than ever. This was another observation to which Madeleine could find no reply. Without essaying to make an appropriate answer, she said, it will never do to let the whole burden of nursing your father devolve on you, Maurice. You will be broken down. May I plan for you? You will need an experienced god-malade. It would be difficult at short notice to procure any so reliable and so well-versed in the duties of a nurse as Mrs. Lawkins. Then, too, your father is accustomed to see her near him, and a familiar face will be more welcome than a stranger's. Do you think it would be wrong to engage her without your grandmother's knowing that she had been in my employment? I have no scruples on that head, returned Maurice, but there are others which I cannot readily get over. She is your housekeeper, and I have heard you say that she is very valuable to you. I know that it is exceedingly difficult to obtain good domestics in this country. You cannot replace her at once. How can you spare her? Easily, easily, do not talk of that. I will speak to her, and she will go to you tomorrow morning. Meantime, I advise you to inform the Countess that a nurse is coming. One charge more. Your father is so much better that instead of wearing yourself out by sitting up with him, it would be wiser to have a sofa upon which you could take rest placed beside his bed. Monsieur de Bois will gladly take his turn in watching, 
but after a few nights i think count tristan will need no one but mrs lawkins ah madeleine madeleine interrupted him one word about the delicacies which you cannot readily procure in a hotel and which it would deprive me of a great happiness if i could not send as the countess is up now and might see and recognize robert i will order him to deliver the salver to a waiter who attends upon your rooms would it not be advisable to say a few words to this man to prevent any inadvertent remark in the presence of your grandmother well thought of how do you keep your wits so thoroughly about you madeleine how do you manage to remember everything that should be remembered and at the right moment if i do though i am not disposed to admit that such is the case it is simply through the habit of taking the trouble to do so to think at all to reflect quietly upon what would be best what is most needed a very simple process and like a great many other simple but important processes rare because it is so simple remarked maurice with great justice during this conversation maurice and madeleine had been standing where she found him on entering the room but he had not the resolution to tear himself quickly away and said let me sit a little while in your boudoir and talk to you madeleine i have not been able to reconcile myself so quickly to my own change of abode as you seem to have done to our departure from yours was it not surprising that such a noble-minded man as maurice could make an observation so ungracious so ungenerous and one which in his heart he knew was so unjust to the woman he loved yet it would be difficult to find a lover who is incapable of doing the same why is it that men even the best are at times stirred by an irresistible prompting themselves to wound the being whom they would shield from all harm dealt by others with chivalric devotion let a woman commit the slightest action that can by ingenious torturing be interpreted into a moment's want of consideration for the feelings of her lover and all his admiration his tenderness his reverence will not prevent his being cruel enough to stab her with some passing word that strikes as sharply as a dagger you think me a true philosopher then replied madeleine gravely but she added in a lower and less firm tone while a soft humility filled her mild eyes do you think i am reconciled maurice do you not think i am a heartless senseless brute to have grieved you do not look so sorrowful you make me hate myself ah you did well not to trust your happiness to my keeping i am not a fit guardian it was far harder for madeleine to hear him say that than to listen to an undeserved reproach but she led the way to her boudoir without replying and for the next hour maurice sat beside her and they conversed without any jarring note breaking the harmony of their communion End 
of chapter 44.